to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-out. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, Greg Stetz. Today, we take a look at China's maritime activities and Sino-American relations. With us is Dr. Nong Hong, the Executive Director and Senior Fellow of the Washington, D.C.-based Institute for China-American Studies and a Research Fellow with the National Institute for South China Sea Studies of China. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Hello. Please tell us a bit about your background. How are you involved in Sino-American relations? I have been researching the marine issues of the South China Sea during my studies at the University of Alberta in Canada. My PhD was focused on the law of the sea in the South China Sea area, but my research also involves the ocean governance, the management of maritime disputes, including not only the South China Sea, but also the Arctic area. For a period of time, I also worked at the South China Sea Research Institute in China. As the topic of the South China Sea has been an important component of Sino-American relations, over the past few years I have been increasingly involved in discussions and work with the American scholars. We wanted to establish what's the dispute about, what's the legal problem here. In 2014, I joined the Institute for China-America Studies in Washington, which researches various aspects of Sino-US relations, including the maritime and economic relations. The former is my primary field of expertise, and the key projects I launched at the center focus on marine policies and the opportunities for cooperation between China and the United States within that field. That's how I got involved in China-U.S. relations. Your research has been focused on maritime issues. Can you give us a brief overview of the 21st century maritime Silk Road? What is China hoping to accomplish with this project? When we talk about the 21st century maritime Silk Road, we actually mean two roads. The first one connects cities of China's eastern coast through the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean with Europe. The other one passes through the South China Sea and runs into the South Pacific. Recently, we also began to discuss the Polar Silk Road, which runs from China through the Arctic Circle and then into North America, East Asia and Europe. So the maritime Silk Road is actually a very complicated concept. Let me first focus on the Polar Silk Road, as I have been recently researching a study on it and released a report on China's Polar Silk Road policy. There aren't many similar researchers available today. So the Polar Silk Road is mostly built upon cooperation between China and Russia. The idea was proposed in 2017 by Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin as cooperation on the Arctic Channel. We can now talk about a series of shipping routes in the area and voyages being completed, for example, by Costco Shipping Group. Additionally, China and Russia's transportation departments are discussing the Memorandum of Understanding on broader maritime cooperation in the polar region. 
All that to develop a better policy and legal framework for active cooperation. Also, the ministries of commerce are in talks about establishment of a specific working framework for the Arctic issues and the enterprises for the two countries are working on to develop cooperation in oil and gas exploration and development in the Arctic region. But the policy quote involves also more countries, including Iceland, Norway or Denmark, and these countries are also exploring cooperation with China. It's a very complicated process, and it is hard to clearly predict the ultimate outcome. However, it is quite possible that the Polar Silk Road will, in the future, also involve non-polar countries. The Silk Road can lead to significant development of local infrastructure, including ports on this foundation, to open new shipping opportunities. Going back to the two maritime roads, what does China hope to achieve in the South Pacific? There are two sides to this, domestic and international. Domestically, China wants to leverage the Maritime Silk Road to develop such provinces and cities as Shanghai, Guangdong, Fujian, Zhejiang, or Hainan. It is to be achieved through development of the maritime economy and boosting their shipping activity through improved connectivity. On the international level, China seeks to promote its infrastructure, improve connectivity and access to resources along the Maritime Silk Road. How is the development of the 21st century maritime Silk Road viewed by the United States? What is the feeling on the ground that you get in Washington and how is it different or similar to what you sense in China? I arrived in Washington at the end of 2014. The concept of the Belt and Road Initiative, including the 21st century maritime Silk Road, had already been unveiled in 2013. But BRI only caught the attention of American scholars in 2015, then became a hot topic. Until that time, the issue of the South China Sea had been in the spotlight. I remember when in October 2015, American and Chinese scholars were invited to participate in events focused on the Maritime Silk Road. That initiated the interest on the American side, but it still wasn't large scale. However, I felt that this meeting was significant as American scholars began to become interested in the Maritime Silk Road. They wanted to know what the opportunities for American enterprises were and how they could get involved. So, in early 2016, we began a study together with a group of primarily American scholars. We investigated what the American understanding of the Maritime Silk Road was and what were their opinions about the concept and its implementation. That report is available on the website of our research center. The main takeaways and conclusions were that Americans see the Maritime Silk Road as an important project and concept which is going to have a significant impact on the Eurasian economy, but they viewed it as very ambiguous and had certain reservations, the primary one being that the concept was proposed by China. It is based on a belief that if many countries decided to join this new framework, it would pose a challenge to the U.S. position in the global order and could lead to marginalization of the West-led economy. Linked to it is a sense of unease over the level of transparency and a belief that there are strategic intentions on China's side to develop its navy as part of the Maritime Silk Road. We also noted calls for increased standardization of projects pursued as part of the Silk Road. Since our research, the interest in the Maritime Silk Road has only been growing in the United States, and we have also observed an increased interest in energy projects connected to the Maritime Silk Road. Currently, with the deterioration of Sino-American relations, we naturally see a more cautious attitude to becoming prominent. As for the Chinese side, the enthusiasm for the Belt and Road Initiative is obviously much greater. Currently, every research organization has a research team focusing on the Belt and Road Initiative. The feeling you get in China is quite positive and optimistic. 
Chinese scholars will, for example, focus on the number of letters of intent signed by participating countries. The local governments have high hopes for a positive impact on the maritime silk road on the domestic economy, which they express in the strategic reports that they issue. So the American and Chinese perspectives are different. I would hope that the research will not be carried out behind closed doors and that we will see increased communication on the topic of the Maritime Silk Road, at least between scholars. And how is the U.S. responding to the 21st century Maritime Silk Road, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region? So how does the United States respond to the 21st century Maritime Silk Road? First of all, it is a process. The response sees a lot of transformation. During the Obama era, if you will, we had seen an evolution of temporary policies, temporary responses, which also included harmonious partnership. It also included strengthening American maritime policies through developing stronger trade investment and policy ties between the U.S. and the ASEAN. In Trump's period, the United States have taken more strategic steps and aimed specifically at the Belt and Road Initiative. For example, we have noted increasing criticism of China by senior government officials also on public occasions. This administration also um, a number of strategic documents that are issued are specifically aimed at the BRI. And in the two reports that opened and closed this year listed China as a major competition target. This is a series of significant official reactions. But criticism is not the only response that the Trump administration is engaged in as they are in a process of strengthening relations with many U.S. regional partners involved in maritime economy. For example, on November 17th, Trump established an official partnership between the Japan Bank for International Cooperation as one of the agencies of overseas private investment companies of the United States and Japan. Even a broader strategy was deployed by the United States, the Indo-Pacific strategy, which is a direct response to the Belt and Road projects. For example, it launched a series of new initiatives related to infrastructure, new educational consulting funds, telecommunication partnerships, and network security partnerships. Put simply, in the Trump era, we see a more active U.S. putting forward more measures aimed at countering China's maritime silk road. So some claim that the Sino-U.S. relations will have to fall victim to what is perceived as a law of geopolitics, often described as a so-called Thucydides trap, which claims that the anxiety of the current power over the rising competition is likely to lead to a conflict. Many point to maritime tensions in the South China Sea or in East China Sea as potential sparks. How likely is such a conflict in your view? And what key things can each of the sides do to avoid it long term? Thank you for this question. I think that especially since last year, the trajectory of Sino-American relations has been troubling. That includes trade disputes and the North Korean issue, which have taken the spotlight from the maritime relations. Referring to your question, I don't think that the maritime relations will spark a conflict, neither short nor long term. First, let me talk about the East China Sea problem, as it's less complex, involving only two countries. Basically, the two countries created some contradictions because of historical factors and different legal interpretations. The views of China and Japan toward the East China Sea issue have been contradictory over years, but now the overall environment of the East China Sea problem is improving. The leaders of the two countries and various economic actors are now working to make the ties between the countries closer. And I don't see the East China Sea issue causing problems in the foreseeable future. 
Of course, the U.S. also has its position on the East China Sea issue. For example, the U.S. claims that Japan has the administrative power over the Diaoyu Islands, which is contradictory to China's view. But again, I do not see the East China Sea becoming the spark of conflict between China and the U.S. The South China Sea issue is more complicated, as more parties are involved in the dispute. That includes the United States, which, although it's an extraterritorial actor in this arena, claims to have its national interest in this arena. So I think that in the next year or two, the freedom of navigation actions in the South China Sea run by the United States will become more and more institutionalized, and the intention to challenge China will become increasingly obvious. We're also likely to see an increased Air Force presence of the U.S. in that arena. The goals will be um, display of American military capabilities, attempts to contain China, and consolidating alliances and partnerships. And given the fact that the U.S. has its Indo-Pacific strategy that includes Australia, Japan, and India, this arena is more worrisome than the East China Sea. But again, I don't think that tensions will escalate to the point of conflict, despite the fact that China and the U.S. have very different perspectives on this issue. The bottom line for China is, I want to safeguard my sovereignty, my sovereign rights, my economic rights, and the United States is approaching the issue from a position of an extraterritorial actor which says it has a deep interest in the South China Sea arena. The key question that really needs to be asked is, are these two stances mutually exclusive, or can they actually be reconciled through a mutually acceptable solution? That's the key issue. A stable situation in the South China Sea is in the interest of both sides. And that's the bottom line and a framework for a solution. So as much as we will continue to see both sides testing or challenging one another, it is not likely to lead to an open conflict. As I said, for China, the bottom line is in the sovereignty issue. It's a red line. And that's why it's better when other actors do not show public support for a specific country engaged in the South China Sea dispute. For the United States, shown in the freedom of navigation actions, the bottom line is right of entry and stability of the region. In my view, that's not exclusive. And if the difference in interpretation of the freedom of navigation can be addressed, I think that a consensus can be reached, especially given the fact that China is now constantly improving its relations with ASEAN countries and having open discussions. That also includes bilateral relations. The improvement in Sino-Philippines relation is a good example. So given all that, I don't see the South China Sea as an area that will spark an open conflict. And what impact does the South China Sea dispute have on the development of the Maritime Silk Road? Can the Maritime Silk Road play a constructive role in addressing the tensions in the region? This problem is a bit complex and involves many issues. The first one is sovereignty and demarcation of borders, which extends to such issues as fishery, oil, and gas exploitation or marine environmental protection. There is no simple solution. And the only way to solve it is through continuous dialogue, multilateral cooperation agreements, and promoting cooperation. At the beginning, in non-sensitive areas such as fisheries and maritime search and rescue, the 21st century maritime Silk Road can help to facilitate it. As China discusses with other countries, especially Southeast Asian countries, cooperation on port construction, maritime transportation traffic, etc., it helps to downplay the tensions over sovereignty and sovereignty rights. At the same time, it's not a panacea. Sovereignty is an issue that does not allow compromise. The sovereignty right is with one country or another. 
Similarly, border demarcation is not an issue easy to resolve, and it also has an impact on the maritime Silk Road. For example, let's take a look at the cooperation between China and Vietnam. The maritime Silk Road passes through the Vietnamese seas, and Vietnam, Vietnam's attitude is quite two-sided. On the one hand, there is an interest in economic benefits that the maritime Silk Road can bring, promoting the local sea, for example, the construction of ports, improving supply chains, and granting participating countries greater interconnectivity with the global trade system. But on the other hand, Vietnam still harbors some suspicious attitudes regarding China's intentions and is anxious about the long-term impact on its own position. So the tensions in South China seas are an important factor in implementing the Maritime Silk Road in Southeast Asia. That closes our show for today. Nong, it was a pleasure having you with us. Thank you for sharing your perspectives on the Maritime Silk Road and the development of Sino-American relations. Thank you. this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.